The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. We are now in Luke chapter 2. Actually, before I read Luke chapter 2, if you have your Bible, we'll go to the Gospel of John. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, so it's the fourth Gospel. In the first chapter, just one verse to be reminded of that I want to emphasize. John wrote his gospel after Luke wrote his gospel. John was a friend of Jesus, an apostle of Jesus, probably a distant cousin of Jesus, the best friend of Jesus while he was on earth. John lived many years beyond Jesus, maybe 60 years after Jesus died. Uh, John was a key apostle. God used him tremendously to found many church churches early on, and then God allowed John to write this gospel, the gospel according to John, probably 60 years after Jesus died, sometime in the 90s. So the other three Gospels had already been written. John was a Jew from Israel, believer, apostle. Here's what he said. So he's looking back 60 years later on the ministry of Jesus, having walked and talked with Jesus for at least three plus years. Listen to one of the sentences he uses to summarize the overall ministry of Jesus or what it was like when Jesus came the first time. Jesus is now in heaven as John is writing this. John chapter 1, verse 9, he calls Jesus the true light. There was the true light, that was Jesus, which coming into the world when he was born of Mary, enlightens every man, has to do with conscience and a universal knowledge of God. Verse 10, he was in the world. Jesus was in the world. He was a real human being. God became a man. He was in the world for 33 years. He had a three-year public ministry. He was in the world. In those three years, he was preaching and teaching. Not only was he in the world, the world was made through him. He created the world with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is creator. Jesus is fully man, fully God, fully creator. This is astounding. And he's going to contrast the astounding statement in verse 10 with verse 11 with a huge contrast. The world was made through Jesus, and yet the world did not know Him. This is a categorical statement, almost an umbrella statement. He doesn't mean that no one in the world knew Him, but generally speaking, for the most part, the majority of the world, the then-known world where He was and ministered, rejected it. They didn't know Him personally as Savior, as Lord. As a matter of fact, He gets more detailed in verse 11. Jesus came to His own. What does that mean? He came to Israel in fulfillment of the Scripture. Jesus was a Jew. He came to the Jews. He was the Messiah of Israel. He came to His own. That's what it means. His own people. Of anyone that should have opened their arms and embraced the Messiah, it should have been the nation of Israel. He came to His own. And yet, those who were His own, Israel, the Jews, did not receive Him, literally did not welcome Him. What did they do? They killed Him. They murdered Him. They executed Him. They humiliated Him. They condemned Him. That's what that means. He came to His own, and His own received Him not. Now, when you read that, if you only read that verse, you think, wow, that's bad. Israel's bad. I mean, no Jews, no Jews believed in Jesus when He came? Well, that's why we have the rest of Scripture. We know what John is saying. John is saying, and it's modified by context and history and other Scriptures, that, and even his own words, there were some who received Jesus who were Jews. There were some in Israel who embraced Jesus. John is just articulating a common theme 
that we see not just in the New Testament and the ministry of Jesus, but a, a theme all throughout Scripture, that it seems like God shows himself, reveals himself, manifests his goodness and grace, and everybody's not on board. It's a minority. It's a few. This is called the faithful remnant, and it's all throughout Scripture, explicitly seen in the days of Moses. Remember when God did those amazing miracles, rescuing the Jews or the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt. He leads almost two million Jews out of slavery through ten inimitable, unbelievable miracles, climaxing with parting the Red Sea, leads them to safety, to Mount Sinai, and what do they do? Oh, thank you, God, our wonderful... No! They whine, they complain, they murmur, they reject Moses as a true prophet. There's only a few that are thankful. There's only a few that appreciate what God has done. There's only a few that are, that are faithful. That begins Israel's history, and that continues all throughout Israel's history for 1,400 years. It is the faithful few. It is the remnant. And so when Jesus comes along as Messiah, he says that very thing in one of his greatest sermons, few there be that find it. Narrow is the path or the road. Narrow, small is the gate. Not because God isn't gracious, He is. His, his grace is immeasurable. His grace is astounding. But the human heart is, is hard and wicked. So don't be confused by John's statement that all of Israel rejected the Messiah. So Luke, going back to Luke now, what Luke has been showing, Luke is writing to probably a new believer, Theophilus. He's a respected, dignified fellow of means probably. He's probably a non-Jew himself. Luke is not Jewish. And Luke is writing this long testimony about the true facts about Jesus Christ, his person, and his ministry. And he's laying it out with witnesses. He's being a historian. He's doing it from a legal point of view. He's also led by the Spirit of God to ensure that every last word, jot, and tittle is exactly how it happened, the way God wants it. And he's making a convincing case to Theophilus of a proper view of who Jesus is. Because there were wrong views of Jesus in the days of Theophilus, just as there are wrong views today. There are competing views. There's distorted views. Luke, after all, was in the minority. Most people rejected Jesus Most of uh, when Jesus came. Most of Israel rejected him. Not all, but a few. He went all throughout Israel doing miracles, healing everywhere he went, north and south. So his reputation was renowned widespread after three and a half years. His miracles were undeniable. His grace was undeniable. His goodness and love was undeniable. And yet, what was the response wholesale of Israel as a nation? They rejected him, and only a few believed. So much so that it was the, the mad, raging crowd at his execution screaming for his blood, crucify him. Crucify. Those were Jews. Those were Israelites saying about their Messiah, crucify, kill him, yes. And who's spearheading the attack? It's the Israelite religious leaders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes. And it looked like all of Israel was rejecting the Messiah. But it wasn't all of Israel. There were a few, a faithful few, the faithful remnant. So that when Jesus dies, rises again, goes back to heaven, you have 120 faithful Jews expecting the Messiah to do something great. And that's Acts chapter 1. So that's the remnant, the 120. And they were all Jews. They were Israelites. And that's how Christianity began. 
And it was always the minority. It was the minority in Jerusalem. It was the minority for the first five years. True biblical Christianity. And they were persecuted. And they were chased out of town. And everywhere Christianity went, it became the minority view. The oppressed and attacked and condemned uh, persecuted view. Because it was the truth. It was about Jesus Christ. Jesus said, the world will hate you. The world hated me, it will hate you. Christianity, true Christianity, biblical Christianity, Jesus promised would always be in the minority, the faithful few, the remnant. And so I lay that out because that's what we're seeing by Luke. Luke is laying it out before Theophilus, uh, an influential man who has probably a broad reach in terms of community and region and country as far as we know. And he's probably hearing a lot of competing, contrasting views about the true identity and ministry of Jesus Christ. Was he a rabble rouser, a social worker, an insurrectionist? Or was he something else? And Luke is laying out the case, no, indeed, he was the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world, the only one who can save your soul, Theophilus. And I'm going to lay it out to the testimony of two or three witnesses who are reliable witnesses who were there at the time, who were historical eyewitnesses, and he begins to lay them out and delineate them one by one, credible, reputable, undeniable in terms of their truth testimony of witnesses who knew personally Jesus Christ and how God was sanctioning him as the Messiah, starting with Zacharias and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, then the John the Baptist himself would become God's witness. Other witnesses, the angels themselves. Gabriel was an angel and a witness and a testimony. Angels that appeared to the shepherds were witnesses that Jesus was who he said he was. The shepherds agreed and spoke on behalf of God, validating as witnesses in fulfillment of Deuteronomy 19. The testimony of two or three witnesses that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Mary and Joseph were reliable, godly, righteous witnesses to the truth. Then last week we saw that God introduced Simeon, a man of God in the temple, who was given a, the Holy Spirit to give prophecy to validate the truth of who Jesus was. He was indeed the Savior of the world. So Luke is just mounting all this evidence in spite of the majority who rejected Christ. It's the faithful remnant. And now today we see another faithful person of God, in the minority, the faithful remnant of Israel, her name is Anna. And God uses her to validate and testify once again, here is another credible, reliable, godly, righteous testimony in light of the Mosaic law to validate that Jesus was indeed the Messiah of God. Anna. Let's read about Anna, verses 36 to 39. Last week we saw that Simeon came into the temple. By the way, uh, at this time of the year, there was the census going on. Sacrifices were being made in the temple. The temple was huge. There's different courts, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of the men, uh, where priests could, could go. Middle of the day, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people scurrying all over at the temple, massive crowds. And out of all of that, Joseph and Mary, obscure poor people from up north, happened to run into this God-ordained prophet of the day, Simeon, who came and immediately took baby Jesus and prophesied over Jesus, saying, this indeed is the Messiah, the consolation of Israel. That's where we left off last week. And Mary and Joseph were just amazed. It's like, wow, Simeon, what, what did he just say? As she treasured that up in her heart. So Simeon's not even done as he's holding baby in the temple, and there's another unknown, heretofore, obscure individual we've never heard of until Luke informs us in the mid-60s, 30 years after the death of Christ, of this amazing woman who was in the temple for decades and decades and decades. Her reputation, no doubt, was widely known all throughout Jerusalem in light of the details that he gives us. Here's another 
validating testimony of a reliable witness of who Jesus was. So Simeon gives baby back to Mary and Joseph, and it says, verse 36, and there was a prophetess at that very moment. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple. So she was always around the temple. Could be that she had an apartment near the temple because they did have those. Not only did she probably live near the temple, during the day she was around the temple, literally. In the court of the women helping out, there were things to do. She was serving. She was praying. She was a godly woman. She was talking to people. We know that. Serving night and day with fastings and prayers, verse 38. At that very moment, she came up. At that what very moment? When Simeon just prayed a prophecy about Jesus, gave it back to Joseph and Mary, who were in awe, and then right then providentially, God brings Anna into their life for another validating testimony and witness of who Jesus is. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God. In the temple, hundreds of people, publicly, out loud, to Joseph and Mary, regarding their son, giving thanks to God, praising God. And she continued to speak of him, God as well as the Messiah, to all those who were looking for the redemption of Israel or the consolation of Israel or of Jerusalem, just as Simeon had said. Then Anna was done. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. The child, that is Jesus, continued to grow. He was eight days old at this time, and then he continued to grow. And we don't see him again for 12 years. He lives for 12 years in obscurity. But he continued to grow. The child, Jesus, the God-man, continued to grow as a human being, become strong, increasing in wisdom and the grace of God, the favor of God, the goodness of the Father was upon him, and that is continually. This is an amazing story and account. So let's just, let's look at Anna's witness and testimony. That's what we want to get at. Um, this week, as you're subjected to the internet and news and stuff going on in the world and newspapers and the Enquirer and magazines at the store. And there's a lot of untruth out there. There's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of lies. And isn't it refreshing to come to the church of God, to be with the people of God, to listen to the word of God, which is truth. It's fact. It's historical. It's reliable. And Luke emphasizes that point. This is I want to share this account with you because it's going to give you confidence in your thinking. It's going to guarantee what God has done. You can have a 100% level of certainty about the truth of God and what's in the Bible. Absolute, total certitude. That's Luke's promise. And, and Anna's testimony is part of that, to buttress that up. So again, just to remind, I want you to be encouraged when you leave today that we looked at the Bible, the Word of God, we heard what it said, we took it at face value, we looked at all the details, and we walk away believing at 100% confidence this actually happened and it, it impacts my life. Because this Savior that was presented in the temple is the same living Savior who is in heaven today who rules the world. And if you know Him, He owns your soul. That's our Jesus. So just three little words to kind of hang your thoughts on regarding this little narrative as we look at it before we have communion. The quality, the prophecy, and the integrity. The quality, the prophecy, and the integrity. The quality is regarding the witness. Is this a reliable witness? Did you know at times that there are courtroom scenes and testimonials where a witness is not reliable? Th that happens. 
where a witness does not tell the truth. That's why in a courtroom you're supposed to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Because you can compromise on any one of those three, right? You can deliberately withhold all the truth. That's the equivalent of a lie. So God is big on this. God is a legal God. God is a God of truth. One of the Ten Commandments, by the way, one of the Ten Commandments isn't thou shalt not lie. Literally, it is thou shalt not bear false witness. That's from a legal point of view. When you are bearing formal testimony, you are not to compromise, distort the truth. You are to tell the, the truth with integrity and not lie. Exodus chapter 20, that's what that means. And there are consequences in the Mosaic law for not telling the truth. And truth has to be validated with two or three witnesses, especially if you're trying to accuse somebody of a, a sin or a crime. God wants witnesses, but he wants reliable witnesses, Witness who is witnesses of integrity. And so here's Anna, she, the quality. That's why I said the word quality. She is a quality witness, a witness of God. She doesn't distort the truth. She has the qualifications. Let's look at her quality. There are eight uh, phrases that define her in just a couple of sentences. Eight. Giving us details about her. So, And that's laying out her qualifications. Luke, I think, felt this necessary because prior to this, Matthew was written, Mark was written. So we know those Gospels. Anna is not mentioned in Matthew and Mark. Some of the Pauline epistles probably have been written. No, I know for a fact they had been. Anna is not mentioned in any of those. Anna is not, this person is not mentioned in the Old Testament. She is not in Scripture yet. She's a new person. This is a new character. A lot of people are like, wait, who's this Anna lady? Well, those who lived after Anna, those who didn't live in Jerusalem didn't know Anna. Those who lived in Jerusalem, everybody knew Anna. She was a, a, a fixture to the property of the temple for 80 years. And her life was consistent, rock solid, impeccable. So for those of us who didn't know her, who didn't live in the area, didn't live during that time, here's the, her profile. The first one is probably the most important, and it's a shocker. And there was a prophetess. Does that kind of jolt you? It did me. And there, was a pro- there weren't many of these in the Bible. A, a prophet. Did you say a prophetess as in female, as in woman prophet? Is that what I heard you say, Luke? Yes. There are only four of these that we know of in the Old Testament. They are obscure. They don't have long ministries. Uh, These four ladies in the Old Testament that were prophetesses, it seems that they were just kind of one-time, one-incident prophetesses where God literally spoke through this woman spontaneously to give divine revelation at a certain time in history. The four prophetesses, there was Miriam, the sister of Moses. Miriam was not perfect. She made a lot of mistakes. As a matter of fact, God almost killed her in Numbers chapter 12 because she was gossiping about her brother, Moses the prophet, behind Moses' back and talking about Moses' wife that she didn't like. Nevertheless, God used her in many ways. And one time in the book of Exodus 15 as a prophet where she gave divine revelation. So uh, she is called Miriam the prophetess. So that was probably a one-time thing, but God poured direct revelation through Miriam to encourage the saints at that time. Deborah was another one in the book of Judges, about 1300, 1200 B.C. And Deborah was called a judge, which was uh, judging the people, a legal position, but also she was kind of a warrior and a, a general in battle. It's amazing. Well, not only that, she's called a prophetess. This is Deborah. She's a woman. 
And if you read Judges chapter 5, you can see the prophecy that she spoke and wrote down. Somebody wrote it down. So she was used by God in a very short period of time at an important point in history to pour forth his direct revelation to his people. Then there was Huldah, not very well known in the book of Kings and Chronicles, who was used for the same, it was a one-time purpose in history, short revelation. God spoke divine revelation through this woman, Huldah. And then we meet Isaiah's wife, Mrs. Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 8, her name is not given, but she's called the wife of Isaiah, and she's called the prophetess, and probably the same thing. The best we can detect, it was a, a one-time scenario regarding the Messiah who would be born of a virgin, and she's called a prophetess. That's about it. Then you got 400 years of silence and obscurity where God isn't speaking at all, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, God starts speaking through all kinds of people, giving divine revelation. For, after 400 years of silence... As far as we know, there, God was not given any divine revelation to Israel for over 400 years until the time of the birth of Christ. And already we see God doing a new thing at this time. It's exciting to be in Israel if you're paying attention of what God is doing at the time of the birth of John the Baptist because God's speaking through people for the first time, direct, special, divine revelation in a way he hasn't since he was speaking through Malachi and Nehemiah for 400 years. He's, he speaks through Zechariah. He speaks through Elizabeth. He speaks through Gabriel. He speaks through the angels who appeared to the shepherds. He speaks through the shepherds. He speaks through Simeon. He speaks through Mary. And this is all written down. Jesus hasn't even been born yet, hardly. And then Jesus is born. He speaks through Simeon, whoever he is. And now he's speaking through some lady, some obscure, elderly, unknown lady who is called a prophetess. Give me, let me give you a definition, a biblical definition of prophetess. There's a lot of confusion. Today in the evangelical world, you will be confused if you try to figure out the definition of prophecy because you will. this is the definition you'll get in the evangelical world today. 150 years ago, this wasn't a problem. Today, it's a problem because 150 years ago, I would propose that all Bible-believing Christians agreed on the definition of prophecy. Here it is. Prophecy is direct, new, divine revelation given by God to a person immediately. It's unlearned. It's just immediate, divine, supernatural, new revelation that is given to a person who speaks it forth or writes it for the people of God. So it's new, immediate, divine revelation. It is always that way in the Old Testament and the New Testament. For prophets and prophetesses, that's what a prophet does. It's not just speaking about the future and guessing about the future. It includes that, but sometimes it's talking about current events. Sometimes it's interpreting, from God's point of view, past events. So prophecy is simply immediate, divine, direct revelation. That's what it is. But today we have evangelicals saying, oh, and it's always true. It's never in error. It can be tested and scrutinized. If somebody says they're a prophet and they make a mistake or say, thus saith the Lord, and they give what's not true, they were called a false prophet, Deuteronomy 13 and 18. They were to be stoned to death. There was no tolerance from God for somebody to stand up and say, I'm a prophet or a prophetess, and then speak non-truth. Today, in the evangelical world, we have all kinds of respectable Bible teachers saying that prophecy can be true sometimes. It's ongoing even today, and sometimes it's true, and sometimes it's not true. you just got to be careful and discerning. That is not a biblical definition of prophecy. You'd be surprised at the Bible teachers who believe that. So that's one extreme. The prophecy is still going on the same way it did in the Bible, and it's not always true. Then there's the other extreme where someone reads, well-known Bible teachers read this passage, and they say, and there was a prophetess named Anna, and then they say, well, it doesn't really mean prophecy. It means she was a teacher. 
So a prophet is a teacher. A prophet is somebody who teaches the Bible. I'm like, no, no, they're not. Somebody who teaches the Bible is called a teacher, not a prophet. Teacher and prophet are clearly distinguished in the Bible. God has given gifts to the church. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, he has given apostles and prophets and teachers. It says the same thing in Romans and other places in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 12. I think they do that because they want to kind of preserve the distinction between the roles of men and women. They get a little queasy at the thought that God's speaking divine revelation through a woman. Ho, 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 ho. Can't have that. No, yeah, we can. It's in the Bible. This doesn't mean she was the president. It doesn't mean she was a pastor. It doesn't mean she's usurping the authoritative role of a man as a leader. It has nothing to do with it. She was a prophetess. She spoke divine revelation as a mouthpiece of God at this important time in history. And where did she prophesy? At a minimum in verse 38. Where the Spirit of God came upon her and whatever she said, was true, whatever she said was universal, whatever she said was new information from God, whatever she said was without error and it was completely binding. It wasn't written down, but it was prophecy, it was direct revelation. And maybe she was a prophetess just for that one moment in history to validate for all to see in the temple when Jesus was dedicated as Messiah at the temple, God's hand or stamp of approval on his life. She was a prophetess. A little more about her personal life. Anna, she was the daughter of Phanuel. Probably people knew who that was, her dad, a man of reputation, probably, no doubt. He was of the tribe of Asher. The ten, tribe, the ten lost tribes of Israel, they weren't lost. This would have been one of them. Lost meaning we don't know where they went. No, they know. Anna knew she was from Asher. Asher wasn't a lost tribe. So that was part of the northern kingdom. She knew exactly her lineage and what her role was. She was advanced in years. You know what this literally means? She was really, 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 really old. I mean, Luke goes overboard. This is an emphatic statement. I mean, this lady, in other words, this lady is older than normal. This lady is older than Zacharias and uh, Elizabeth, who were like really old. She's like older than that. And he's going to go on to details as to tell us exactly how old she was. So the Living McManus translation would say she was really, 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 really old. Really. And had, well, tell us how old, Luke. Well, I will. How do you know this, Luke, by the way? When she lived, she's probably dead in heaven by now. Luke's going back in 65 A.D. to write about Anna, somebody probably he's never met or even heard of until he went back to Jerusalem with, with Paul when he got arrested. And Luke's going around doing research talking to people who were still alive, and he, all he had to do, he was in Jerusalem. Everybody in Jerusalem knew the reputation of Anna. That's where he got the information. And he writes it down here. Uh, she was married. We don't know how old she was when she was married. I'm going to say anywhere between 13 and 20. We don't know. Joseph was considered a young man at age 17 in Genesis 39. I'm just going to say that. Somewhere between, but we don't know. Probably as a young woman. She was advanced in years. And she had lived with her husband. So she was married. She got married, and then she lived with her husband seven years. And after seven years of marriage, uh, her husband died, and she became a widow. Verse 37. New American Standard botches your Greek text. Uh, does anybody read the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB? Yeah, keep doing that. I'm reading it. I'm enjoying it. I like it. Some of the translations are excellent precision. Here's one of them. The Christian Standard Bible gets it right. Here's the literal translation in verse 38. So in other words, I would say your New American Standard, NIV, 
ESV, they get it wrong. Sorry. It's not exacting. This is what it should say. Christian Standard Bible, Greek text. And she was a widow for 48 years, or for 84 years. She was a widow for 84 years. She was a widow for 84 years. That's different than other translations that say uh, her husband, she was married seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84, giving the implication that she died when she was 84. No, that is not what it says. Literally, and she was a widow for 84 years. 84 plus 7 is 91. If she got married at 10, then she's 101. If she got married at 20, she's 111. She's about 110 years old. Hence Luke's statement, she was like really, 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 really old. And back in this day, 70 years was the average age. How do we know that? Because Psalm 90 said so. So 70 was about, that's how old David was when he died in Solomon in 1000 B.C. Psalm 90 said 70. It hasn't changed since then. Check the records. 70 was about it. She was way beyond 70. And furthermore, regarding the quality of her reputation, she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. She was just a godly woman. Uh, she didn't ever remarried. She just committed her life to God, and she was praying fervently. The kind of prayer she was giving were petitions or supplications or entreaties. She was pleading with God, pleading with God, pleading with God about what? God, send your Messiah. I'm reading the Old Testament. I'm reading Isaiah. She quotes virtually from Isaiah that you are going to send the Comforter. You're going to send the Redeemer. You're going to redeem Israel. You're going to re redeem your people in Jerusalem. You're going to send the Savior of the world. Oh, God, please bring it. Bring it quickly. Bring the Savior. Maranatha, Lord, come soon. This was her prayer. Not year after year, decade after decade after decade after decade after decade. Everybody saw her witness. She was a quality witness. Let's go on to her prophecy, verse 38. At that very moment, when Simeon came up, gave baby back to Mary and Joseph, Anna comes in as God prompted her through the Holy Spirit, and she began giving thanks to God publicly there, so no doubt that Joseph and Mary could see it, giving thanks to God. Praying to God, praising God out loud as a prophetess. She continued to speak of God. Those are the prophecies she is speaking. God is giving her divine revelation, direct revelation, binding revelation, new truth these people have never heard before. People are astounded. They are in awe. They're watching. They're listening. This is a public spectacle in this very busy temple. Joseph and Mary are listening, taking it in. They're already blown away by what Simeon said and already blown away by what the, the angel said as Mary's trying to treasure all this stuff up in her heart about this baby. And then here's Anna going on. We don't know how long she went on, but she's giving divine revelation, culminating with this phrase, a beautiful phrase, continues to speak of him, that is God, the Savior of Israel, to all of those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem, who were looking for the Messiah, who were looking for the Savior who knew those prophecies in the Old Testament, the, the Messiah would come, Isaiah 53, that he would die for his people, he'd justify his people, he would redeem his people, he'd buy back his people. The beautiful word there, redemption means something. Redemption, what's that? Redemption means to purchase something. God purchased something when Jesus came. What did God purchase? God purchased his people. He purchased forgiveness of sin. He purchased his people. There was a price paid. What was the price paid to make that purchase? It was the blood of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ. That was the price. Who did God pay that to? Well, he didn't buy it from Satan. Satan had no authority. Actually, it was Jesus' life was given to the Father as a sacrifice. The price was paid to the Father to appease him, to appease his right. That's redemption. 
He's the creator. He's the judge. He was appeased with the death of Christ. If you embrace that, God is not angry at you. He's forgiven you of your sins in Christ Jesus because of his redemption through his death and resurrection on the cross. And that is her prayer. That's her prophecy. And then finally, after the quality of her character, the prophecy and the content of what she was praying, there's the integrity of Joseph, Mary, and their family. And really, the integrity of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was born under the law and fulfilled all the law. Verse 38, or verse 39. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, everything, everything that was stipulated in the Mosaic law, Joseph and Mary were attentive to it. They loved Yahweh at a young age. They performed everything in the law. We already saw that last time. What were the laws required? They, they had to do circumcision. Some parents didn't want to do circumcision. It's bloody. It's, it's kind of abnormal and weird. It's painful. There's a story of Moses in the Old Testament. Moses gets married to his wife, probably from Africa. And Moses knows the law. He had a boy, Gershom, or his son. And he knew according to what God expected, he needed to circumcise his son. Well, he neglected to circumcise his son on the eighth day. We don't know why. Maybe it was his, well, we know his wife didn't want him to. So you could see what that looks like at home. Husband and wife having a discussion, mom and dad, about one person wants to do something, the other doesn't. Who wins the argument? Well, in this case, the wife probably did. And so Moses abdicated what he knew was right. We need to circumcise our son. And so the Bible tells us that God intervened, and it said God got angry with Moses. The wrath of God was about to be poured down. God threatened to kill Moses on the spot. Moses, the most humble man of God alive at the time. The prophet of God. God got angry with Moses. Why? Because they didn't circumcise their son in obedience to the law that he had laid down. In, in obedience to the Mosaic covenant, but also to the Abrahamic covenant. And Moses said, man, we got to do this. Talk to his wife. And so the wife complied. She, she finally came around and she submitted to her hubby. She was not happy about it. She gets a flint and she does the dirty deed. And then she takes the skin and she throws it at Moses. You bridegroom of blood. Classic marital spat. But anyway. Mary and Joseph, they didn't have that problem. They just, eighth day, we do it. We love God. This is what he said. We trust him with faith. They circumcised Jesus on the eighth day. They named Jesus. That's another obedient thing. The angel said, his name shall be Jesus, and they obeyed Jesus. They submitted to what the angel said. Another law they did, purification. Because they gave birth to a male, Mary had to be purified. She had to abstain for those 80 days, and she did. They had to do the uh, dedication. Uh, they had to dedicate Jesus because he was the firstborn male in fulfillment of Exodus 13. So there's four right there. What else did you do? They had to do sacrifice at the very end of it all by either giving a lamb or two turtle doves. They did that as well, a sin offering. God, we need for your forgiveness of sin. So there's five specific things they did when it says, and they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. Not only that, aside from this, why were they down there in Jerusalem anyway? Because she was nine months pregnant. Why do you travel 100 miles on that rough terrain to go to Jerusalem if you don't have? They were there because of the census. A pagan 
governor required that everybody in the area go to their selected city to register for the census. That was not in the Mosaic Law. They could have just said, ah, that guy, he doesn't rule over Israel. That's not in the Mosaic Code. I don't have to obey that. I don't need to listen to some pagan ruler, some pagan governor, some pagan leader, some non-Christian leader. I don't have to listen to him. That's not God's word. That wasn't their attitude. There is no authority that exists that has not been put there by God himself, Romans 13. We need to submit to the governing authorities. And they did. And they went immediately to fulfill the census. So they, they were just compliant, humble, obedient. God blessed them as a result. Everything they had performed according to the law of the Lord, and then they returned to Galilee where they were living, to their own city of Nazareth. And the child Jesus continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the favor of God was upon the Lord Jesus. And we're going to meet Jesus and where Luke picks up uh, when he's grown a little bit and 12 years old, and then we'll launch into the rest of his ministry where there's utter silence until he begins his ministry at age 30. Right now we're going to celebrate communion to remember this redemption that the Lord Jesus has provided. If you would bow with me, let's pray as we prepare our hearts for communion. Father, we thank you for this day and the, the privilege to be with the saints, to meet together, but also to be before you, to be in your presence, to learn from you, to be reminded of the truth of the living Word of God. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who is our teacher. We pray that he would continue to impress these truths indelibly and forevermore on our hearts, God. We thank you that you send Jesus, the blessed Savior, in whom alone is forgiveness of sin and eternal life. We give you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.